Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, to get 30, how to get 20, 20, 20, how to get 20, 20, to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So, Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with Plush Care. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at PlushCare.com slash weight loss. That's PlushCare.com slash weight loss. PlushCare.com slash weight loss. For this episode of What Could Go Right, I am speaking with Gretchen Rubin. I've known Gretchen for 15 years, maybe a bit more, maybe a bit less, and watched her career evolve and blossom with fascination. She is now one of the most influential writers on the subject of happiness, habits, and human nature. She has written several books on that set of topics, including The Happiness Project, Happier at Home, Better Than Before, and her latest book, which is out soon and may, by the time you're listening to this, be out, called The Four Tendencies. She has sold almost three million books worldwide, translated into multiple languages, and she has also been an absolute genius at cultivating social media and networks of social media to create a critical mass of a community who are learning from each other and interacting around all of these questions, as well as her own podcast. So it's a real pleasure to have her on this podcast. So Gretchen Rubin, you have been making a study of happiness, which also means, I suppose, to some degree, a study of why people either are unhappy or perceive themselves to be unhappy. Mm-hmm. And you've been doing this for 15 years, 12 years, something? You know, that is a good question. How long have I been doing this? I think, you know, I'm going to look up, I can never remember the, my own pub date, so I'm literally looking up the pub date of the Happiness Project, which is 2009, so I think since 2007. So for like 10, 10 years I've been really studying happiness, but before then I was basically, my, my subject is human nature, and so I think ever since I became a writer I've been looking at one aspect of human nature or the other. So in happiness and looking at it, and I mean, as many people know, and probably some people don't, you're now at the epicenter of a a community that you've helped generate, right? So it's not just the books, it's the social media, it's the online presence, it's the interactivity of these questions and discussions. And I know you have a new book coming out in a couple of months, right? The Mm -hmm. Four Tendencies, so that will continue. But I'm curious, separate from what you put out as observations and tools, um, which we can talk about a little bit, although I think you have a, there are a lot of other outlets for you talking about them. So I'm more interested in what have you learned, what have you learned about human nature, Gretchen, in Mm. the many, many, many inputs you now get around these ideas? Well, I would say, like, the the thing that to me becomes clearer with every year that passes, and, and, and I would have said that I believed this probably when I started, but I didn't really understand how true it was, 
which was that you really have to recognize that in some ways, maybe most ways, you're pretty much like everybody else, but the differences are very important. And that when you're trying to figure out how to make yourself happier or healthier or more productive or more creative, you really have to think about, well, what is true for you? Because, you know, there's this, there's this impulse among, I think, regular people and certainly among experts and writers and pundits and, the, and all that to come up with the best way. This is the best way to do it. This is the right way to do it. This is the, the seven key habits that successful people do before breakfast or whatever. And the fact is... There is no one best way. There's certainly no one right way because people are so different. And one of the things, because all my stuff, I always begin by looking at myself. That's sort of my angle is to study myself. And when I started, like when I did the Happiness Project, I thought it was way more typical than I have turned out to be. And um, in some ways, I'm very much like other people. In some ways, I'm very different. And I, under, I have a lot more understanding of other people now because I've spent so much time thinking about, well, how are people different from each other? Because um, it's just very easy to look out in the world and assume that everybody's basically seeing what you're seeing. They really aren't. So speaking about everywhere out in the world, I, I believe your books have been published into many, many languages, 30 yeah. languages, a lot of different countries. Yeah. Is there, what's the cultural part of this? Like how much is happiness an American thing versus understood differently by other cultures? How much have you learned about how these things break along national and international lines? You know, that is a massive subject of international interest, and there's tremendous academic interest in it. It's not something that I study at all. Um, I'm really trying to understand what I see right in front of me. And when you start getting into ideas of, like, how does somebody in the Middle East conceive of happiness and, and, and choice and a good life, uh, or someone in Japan, um, or someone in India. It, ca- it starts getting really complicated really fast. Um, and uh, I feel like what I'm studying just, you know, in my own neighborhood is enough to keep me busy. So I'm just trying to understand what I am part of, the culture that I am part of. Right, and you're totally right. There's this whole academic world. There's a attitudes project that Michigan's been running for years about how do people self-identify in terms of happiness? I wrote something in a totally different venue about you know, Bhutan trying to yes. define what is a happiness index. And certainly trying to market itself. Exactly. As the happiness place done work. It's, they've been, it's a fascinating tourism uh, effort. But you don't find in the, in the feedback that you get, I mean, I guess I'm more interested in that aspect of it. Mm. Like, do you find that there is, do you get different kinds of feedback from people in different parts of the world, or do you think it's more self-selective, so the feedback you get tends to be more human rather than nationally identified? I think it's more human than nationally identified. It's always interesting for me, because, like, because inter- as you know, you know inter- when international rights are sold, the books come out very unpredictably. You, you're, not very, you're not close to it the way you are when you're in your own country. And you don't really know what their timeline is. And so all of a sudden, I'll just get like a wave of emails from Turkey or a wave of emails from Czechoslovakia or so, you know, whatever, um, whenever it comes out in that language. So that's always interesting to me to see. And I love seeing the book jackets because um, every country can 
every publisher can pick its own book jacket, and so it's really interesting to see how different countries will interpret the same material and try to present it in a way that's going to be most enticing to their audience. But mostly what people write about, which is kind of surprising, is they'll just tell me some little anecdote and be like, you and I are exactly alike, I had exactly this experience, or this is exactly what worked for me. So usually it's about something that's very specific and is like a point of contact. Um, so I don't see a lot of cultural differences, but that's also what people are choosing to connect on. Yeah, I mean, it, it may also be the nature of the kind of the, the fundamental humanness of the topics or the, the questions of how do I live a life that mm-hmm. is the life that I want to be living. Uh, you know, you think about Mary Kondo and, and her work, and which is very Japanese, and yes. it's sort of approach to order and the lack of clutter, and yet it sold millions of copies in the United States. But one thing I really liked about the book, for anybody out there who's a true Marie Kondo head, um, they did not try to change her Japan, Japanese-ness. They did not edit that out. They let her just be very Japanese. Like, there was this hilarious side note, that comment she made, where she was like, well, you know how you, you have your stuff that you have to store away? Like, you know, you have your ski clothes, and you have your holiday decorations, and you have your tea ceremony things. And then she just goes on. And I thought, I love the fact, you know, she's really representing a Japanese point of view. And for me, it made the book, um, it was sort of a, it was a whole other thing that I enjoyed about the book. Um, but you're right, when people are connecting to it, it's because of their clutter. It's not because they're somehow trying to study Japanese culture through her, probably. Yeah, I wonder if there's a discussion somewhere about Gretchen Rubin that's like the the, the through-the-looking-glass comment about, oh, you know, Gretchen, I, they didn't edit out her Americanness. Yeah, right. Right, if there's right. some version of it and someone reading about it. I mean, that's an interesting question. Well, it's funny because you get notes from translators sometimes. And so I've had funny comments from translators at, one asked me what, um, what a sippy cup was. One asked me what wilted greens were. Once I, refer, I referred to somebody having O.J., and they were writing to confirm that I was referring to O.J. Simpson. It's like, nope. Uh, glad you asked. Good, um, good question. Yeah, and so it's interesting somehow what types of things kind of trip up translators. This is like reading the audiobook. I just read my audiobook for the Four Tendencies, and I found out the word that I have seen a million times and I would have never thought I could not pronounce is hygienist. Dental hygienist. They had, over and over, they were like, hygienist. I would repeat, hygienist. Hygienist. I could not say that word, and I had no idea that I had trouble with it until I was trying to say it. Until you were doing it on the audiobook. Yes, you learn. These are the things we learn. So I've got to ask you on the four tendencies, because it occurred to me when I was thinking about it. Is this a... Is this a nod to Miguel Ruiz and the the four agreements? Yes. No. Okay. It's four because there are four. This, this is this is a personality framework that I kind of found in the world, and I, I truly feel like I discovered it, like the periodic table of the elements. It's like there's four because there are four, and four is all you need. Everybody's one of four. That is that is an, you know it's it's like uh, you know it's like the Muggle sorting hat. It's there's four because there's four houses. There are no more, there are no fewer. You couldn't do it a different way. And it's the four tendencies because of a quotation from Freud where he talks about um, the fateful tendencies each one of us brings into the world. And that's how I see these. These are, these are kind of fateful tendencies. They shape the way that we go into the world. You could do something different if you wanted, but this is, this is the tendency that is shaping you. So what do you think about, I mean, when you think about that, placing it on that continuum of whether it's Freud or, or Ruiz or Myers-Briggs test, mm. you know, our desire to 
categorize and understand, I guess, if you looked at Hindu yoga tradition, right? Yes. There, there are different types of yoga for yeah. different types of body or there yeah. are different types of... Is Do you feel like this is a... Uh, a formula that replaces other formulas, or it's just another way of trying to understand where we, who we are, and how we s- sit in a human matrix. Well, it's interesting that you say that because I hear from a lot of people who sort of want to do um, equivalency charts, like here's the Myers Briggs and here's how it tracks, or here's here's the houses of Hogwarts and here's how it tracks, or or whatever, or this is the Enneagram, or this whatever. What uh, here's the five, uh, the big five traits? How would they fall out? And I feel like every framework has its own strengths and its own nuance, and I love a framework. Um, but I think they kind of lose their, uh, their ability to kind of illuminate different hidden aspects of our nature if you try to jam them all into being one thing. So I think let, it, let every framework sort of be its own thing and, ident- and work on its own, with its own language and its own definitions, and don't worry too much about what the equivalencies are. Now, one of the things I would say about my framework, which in my vanity I think is a strength, is that I, th- I think that many frameworks try to be too comprehensive. They try to describe you totally. And usually I feel like I'm kind of this and I'm kind of that, you know? Um, my framework is just one very narrow aspect of your personality. It's an important, significant aspect of your personality. But it's just one aspect of your nature. And so it doesn't try to tell you how ambitious you are, how successful you are, how um, considerate you are of other people, how introverted or extroverted you are, how adventurous you are, how analytical you are, how curious you are. Um, it's just telling you how you respond to expectations. Hmm. That's an important question, it turns out. I argue. Um, but you could get, you know, there's upholders, questioners, obligers, and rebels. You could get 50 questioners lined up, and they would look very different from each other, except that they would have one thing in common. Right. So you're not, you're not saying this is... This is the end-all and be-all of self-definition. It is a tool. Yeah, because a lot of times you'll think like, you're warm and inviting, and you often have trouble saying no to people. You're interested in other things. You know, they just go on and on and on. I'm like, that's too much. People mix it up more than that. Right. So on a, on a broader question, I'm going to jump around here a little bit. Excellent. Do you think that Americans, we'll just deal with Americans right now, are in your lifetime, in general, have moved from a greater state of contentment to a lesser state of contentment? Well, from what I've observed over the last 3,000 years, people always think it used to be better. You know, yesterday's youth, they were the strapping ones. Today's youth, they're so lame. They can't be bothered to do anything. Yesterday, it was stable. People had good values. Today, no values. It used to be that institutions were strong. Now they're weak. This is what people say all the time. I mean, you go back and you read, you know, people in the Roman Forum. What do they say? Today's youth, they're so dissolute. They have no respect. They spend their time, they're wasting their time in these ridiculous pastimes. They don't honor the values of the past. It's just human nature to feel that way. And does that inform any of what you do, which is, do you think people are distracted by a feeling of, having fallen from a height or a cultural moment or a time when things were better. I mean, happiness can often be something you romanticize retroactively that you may not even have felt at the time. Does that get in people's way? 
Well, it could be that way for some people, and I guess it's just that what, what, what I what I focus on in my own my own writing and in my own discussion of it is very forward thinking. So I don't even try to de- I don't even try to define happiness. I mean, I started out in law, and I spent an entire semester arguing about the definition of contract. So I stay away from de- definitions. I've been down that road. Um, but the question is, can you be happier today, tomorrow, next week, next month? Are there things you can do in, as part of your ordinary life without making extraordinary efforts, uh, which most people are just not going to do? Are there just ordinary things that you could do as part of your daily routine that would make you happier? However you would conceive of that. Whatever to you would mean more, that you're happier, could you imagine things that you could do? And here are some things you could consider. Are these the kinds of things that could make you happier? And almost everybody has a long list of very low-hanging fruit of things that they're like, you know, if I, if I got more sleep, I think I would be happier. You know, and it's like, okay, well, that sounds like an attainable goal. What might you do in order to help yourself get more sleep? And then you just start thinking about, well, what are the things that you could do? Um, so I'm, I'm sort of forward-looking in that way because I'm, I'm not that interested in, like, how people felt 30 years ago. You're definitely more pragmatic in your I'm approaches. Very, yes. I am, in, I am in the Benjamin Franklin school of happiness, yes. And that is notable about you. And it is certainly true, by the way. I mean, as you know, happiness researchers, whatever that means, people have tried to quantify these yes. things, have decided after years of futile attempts to create futile as in futility, not futile as in <laughs> futile culture, that it's almost impossible to figure out what this means. That, that you, the, you're best off just letting people subjectively define what that means. Yeah, there's something like 14 academic definitions of happiness, and they just get worse and worse. I mean, and, and the thing is, maybe the scientists have to do that, but my advantage is, is just like a plain old ordinary writer, is I can just say, like, whatever happiness is to you, if it's peace, contentment, bliss, satisfaction... Um, you, you know, whatever you want it, whatever it is in your mind is what it can be. Although, again, I think what's interesting is a lot of that academic world has increasingly come around to we can't even do it. We yeah. might want it. We might want to create some sort of objective definition, but it just doesn't work. It doesn't work yeah. cross culturally. It doesn't work yes. internationally. Yeah, it's very hard. So we're just going to just say increasingly, like when people try to figure, are societies happy? They just ask people, are you happy? Right. They don't try to define it. They don't, because it's almost impossible. They just let it be a self-definition. And one of the things that I think comes as a surprise to many people is that around the world, around the world, in every place that you can think of, I mean, not every place, but most places, if you say to people, are you happy? People say they're either pretty happy or very happy. Most people are pretty happy. It's not true that most people, what is the phrase, live lives of quite, what is it? Not, desperation. Um, quite desperation. Yeah. It's not true. Most people are pretty happy. Now, part of this is because people are very adaptable. And so things are terrible, and you adapt to it. Things are great. You adapt to that. You're pretty happy. Um, and um, and so, uh, so it is hard when you get into these cross-cultural things, because you might say, like, well, one person is living this life, and one person is living this life. How can they both be a seven on a one to ten scale? Because one person clearly has so much a better life in some objective way. Although that that was this famous uh, sociologist in the nineteen seventies, guy named William Esterlin, right? Talked about Esterlin's paradox about stuff, right? That, it's not really a paradox, yeah. Well, that was you know. Yeah. I'm not calling it Esterlin's yes. paradox. To you. I don't understand why anyone called it Esterlin's paradox, but yes. I think they called it a paradox because they th- there was an assumption at one point that just getting more stuff and having more needs met would inevitably lead to a greater feeling of contentment. And so people just didn't, and still I think don't quite understand why it is that the material life 
can be so much better for so many more people. I mean, I wrestle with this all the time. You know, how is it that so many more people around the world and in the United States are materially more secure? And I don't just mean like, you know, better flat screen TV is just yeah. they're living longer. Health yeah. is better. No one's going to die from sudden war. I mean, there's a lot yeah. of things. And yet that doesn't seem to, at some point, lead to greater self-contentment. But again, this, it's a very interesting kind of moral question because because it's sort of like, well, if if they're just if they get if they're no happier, why do we why don't we why do why do we try to change things for them? And I think you know, happiness doesn't always make you feel happy. That's something that I can't <laughs> I can say that a scientist could not say. Happiness doesn't always make you feel happy in one way because sometimes we do things that make us feel bad because it's a way to live up to our values. So I'm going to sit by the bedside of you know my dying father who I never really liked. This is what somebody told me. Like, I, I never got along with my father. My brothers refused to see him because he was such a jerk to us. He's dying. I hate going to the hospital. It's making me miserable. I dread it. I hate every minute. I look back on it with dread. Why am I going? And I'm like, because this is your sense of what it is to, to be a son. So you're doing it to feel right, even though it's making you feel bad. So in some way, it's making you happy. And again, we would say to people, like, well, maybe it's not going to make you feel happier to be more secure, to have better health, to live 10 years longer, to have more opportunity for your children. Maybe you're still going to be a seven. But in some way, we think it is a happier life to have more health, to have more opportunity, to have more education. That's just our judgment. And even if you don't feel it in terms of your happiness level going up, it's still a way of having it. That is a better life. 
valuable to them or meaningful to them or like makes them less happy in a certain way, even if they are experiencing more stress, more anger, more resentment, more frustration. It's a different way of thinking about, well, am I happy? Yeah, I think we should coin, by the way, a phrase, maybe we can do it here, which should be because I love what you said a few moments ago of, of Ruben's paradox, that yes. more, more happiness does not make you happier, yes. which is truly one of these, you know, gives you a moment of pause because people, of course, assume that more of anything that is desirable is going to be additive. And yes. I think a lot of what we're finding in a culture where the struggles are not always about having enough, but are increasingly about having too much or abundance versus scarcity, that, that more of X, the desired X, does not necessarily create deep internal satisfaction and contentment. Yeah. And, I, you know, yeah. humans have not had to deal with that. Yeah. Yeah. No, it's easy to assume that if a little bit makes you happy, more will make you happier. And that is definitely um, not necessarily the case in many situations. So you're uh, about to launch a new book. Mm-hmm. As you keep doing this, right, and mm-hmm. as you build a community, do your goals and I mean, do your own personal goals for these for these books and these projects shift, or are you are you still just interested in creating ever more critical mass? Because that's an interesting question for you, based on what we've just talked about. Mm. Um, well, I have to say, the thing about the four tendencies is. Um, it has so a lot of what I've written about um, in the in kind of in the happiness and habit formation area really uh, meant for individuals. So like I want to improve my habits. How can I make my habits better? And maybe I want I'm you know I'm a spouse. I want I want to help my spouse make better habits. The thing about the four tendencies is I really do believe again in my vanity that it's like you, this could really help people like doctors who struggle in ways that cost lives and billions of dollars to get people to do things like take their prescription medication, do follow-up checkups, manage their blood sugar, uh, do, do rehab exercises. They're very frustrated because they're like, why won't people just do what we say? And I think that looking at the four tendencies gives you a lot of clues to understand why people might not be doing what you say and then how to be more effective in trying to persuade them. And similarly, like work conflict, like a lot of times people are like, I got fired by my boss who keeps saying I'm insubordinate. I'm not a team player. I am a team player. And I'm like, well, I think I can explain to you what's happening here. So I'm hoping that with the four tendencies, I might be able to like, really help people solve certain kinds of problems that are beyond their, their individual um, sort of satisfa- life satisfaction, to use that old phrase, um, but to really sort of understand how groups of people might do a better job of dealing with each other more effectively. Teachers, for instance. You know, I've heard from so many um, professors who are like, how come I can't get my graduate students to finish their PhDs on time? And I've heard from so many PhD students being like, why can't I write my thesis? It's like every, there's every reason in the world to do it. Why isn't it happening? So I think I have an answer for questions like that. That will help each side of that equation understand where someone else is coming from. It's not purely... Yes. Not not purely about the I, but maybe a little more about the us. Yeah, because when you because what happens is you just assume that everyone's like you. It's just like natural to assume that that everybody sees the world the way you do, and everybody's going to resp- and if you do X, everybody's going to respond the way you would think that they would. Um, so once you understand what what needs to be different in order to get them to respond differently, well then you have a much better, much better test, uh, much better outcome.
So in your in your work to date, is there? And I'm I'm sure this is a leading question, but I'm curious <clears throat> about it. Is there a gender skew? I mean, are women more focused on the questions that you've addressed than men, or is it counterintuitively less skewed on one direction than the other? Well, you know, it's hard for me to say because I don't really know who my audience is. Like, I know who I know who I hear from, and of course, like women buy more books than men do, so. Um, many people who are writers have more readers that are women because uh, women just read more books. Um, but it's hard for me to know because, I mean, I hear from a lot of men. I hear from a lot of women. Um, I don't really keep track. Maybe I should. But then again, it's sort of like a self-selecting group of people, like who's going to write. I mean, I certainly think men and women are, are equally interested in it, um, whether they're both as susceptible to me as the person leading the conversation. I don't know. I mean, we, you know, there's some things we know about, like, who buys which book. So We don't know much. Do you know much about who buys what book? I don't. They say, them being the, the they who say these things, that, ah. that literary fiction skews toward women, like 70% of literary fiction is supposedly bought by women. Political history, which I've certainly written some of, absolutely skews toward older men. Mm. So there are some of those... Mm-hmm categories seem mm-hmm. to be more understood. There's a lot of uncertainty, I think, about right. other stuff. Well, I kind of am, like, in this weird cross-section between, I would call, like, self-improvement and business and personality. Um, just, like, where... And then, like, weirdly, I, I pop up a lot in, like, entrepreneurship. Um, I have a ton... Like, I do a lot of conferences on, on entrepreneurship. Because what does an entrepreneur need to do? They need to get themselves to do what they want. You know, they're like, have to manage themselves. Um, yeah, so I'm, I feel like I don't fit that well. And this is a problem for me sometimes, is that I don't fit, like, squarely within a category. And that can be a problem, as you know, when they need to stick you on a bookshelf in the bookstore. So I don't, I don't know. Maybe in, some, maybe, maybe in some I'm getting more women, and some I'm getting more men. It's interesting about entrepreneurship. In two of the other conversations I've had, one with Linda Rottenberg, who's... Oh, she went to law school with me. She was in my husband's class. And she's been at the epicenter of helping promote entrepreneurship around the world. And one of her observations about entrepreneurs, in addition to incredible hard work and extremely laser-like focused vision, is a kind of, you know, optimistic, i.e. more thinking more about what is possible and trying to make that happen than thinking about what is an obstacle and letting that dictate. Um, you know, I don't know if there's an absolute correlation. doesn't mean all entrepreneurs are happy, mm-hmm. but it certainly means that they are, they tend to be driven by a belief in the possibility of, of making conscious specific effort to make things better, improved, all of it. I mean, do you think that might be why the entrepreneur world is, is particularly interested in what you have to say? That could be that that could be, and and that they're interested in trying to understand like how to follow through for themselves. It's funny on that point though. It's uh, when I was in law school that somebody said to me like, if you want to be an entrepreneur, you should not go to law school. And I was like, why? It seems like it'd be a great education. They said no because it makes you too risk averse. Yeah. Because lawyers are trained to think what is every single thing that can go wrong, and what are the conse- what are the dire consequences that will follow. So they're like, no, no, no. Go to business school if you want to be an entrepreneur because lawyer like scare you too much. Well, that was a famous, I mean, this is kind of related. Academics fall into the same category, right? You know, Lyndon Johnson famously said, get me a one-handed economist because I'm tired of someone saying on the one hand yeah, and on right. the other hand, like, exactly. I just want an answer. I want I some just sort want of one hand. Yes, yes, yes. some simplicity. Right. Um, I mean, I'm just curious about the, the only reason why I ask about the gender question is, you know, we live in these bifurcated worlds where we 
you know, even with all the changes of the past 40 years, 50 years, there's some assumptions, I think, of, you know, men are focused on things of action, women are focused on experience and feeling and, and kind of tend to those things in in separate fashions. And one of the things I'm fascinated by is how little we still in our kind of social discussions and who we're going to be, what's our country about, what are things politically, how completely separate those conversations are from these these individual questions of what kind of life do I want to live? Well, here's this, this is, for what it's worth, my view about this male-female thing. I think people spend way too much time thinking, I'm this way because I'm a man, I'm this way I'm a, because I'm a woman. And I think that women are more likely to think that way. And I've had many women say things to me like, well, you know, busy moms like us can't take time for ourselves. And I'm like, well, I don't have any trouble have, taking time for myself. I don't think it's because you're a woman. I think it's because you're an obliger that you feel that way. You think you're ascribing it to the fact that you're a woman, but that is not what I think is really at the heart of it. And so I think that we've sort of been trained to, like, whatever we're like, we point back to I'm a man, I'm a woman. And I think a lot of times it's just individual. Like, I look at me, I look at me and my husband. In many ways, I'm very stereotypically female, and, he, and he's very stereotypically male. But in some ways, I'm very stereotypically male, and he's very stereotypically female. It's kind of the confirmation bias. You know, you go through the world and see men acting like men and women acting like women, because that's what you expect to see, and you sort of don't see how people are being inconsistent with it. And the thing is, like, this is one of the things that led me to the four tendencies, because people kept telling me things about my nature as a woman. I was like, it's just not true. It can't be true that women feel this way, because I so often don't. And so, like, this thing about the busy moms... So I was talking to a journalist, and she asked me this question. Why is it that busy moms like us can't take time for ourselves? And I said, I don't have any trouble taking time for myself. Do you have trouble taking time for yourself? And she said, actually, I don't have trouble taking time for, my, trouble taking time for myself. And I'm like, then why are you asking this question as if it's a universal truth? <laughs> because for neither one of us, we're busy moms. We don't feel this way. So I think that we get kind of carried away by this as like the universal explicator. Um, and ascribe to it way too much influence. And I think it's much more helpful to think about yourself. What is true for you? Whether you're a man, whether you're a woman, it doesn't really matter. What is true for you? It's funny. I think about that. Um, the, one of the canards of, you know, men are really good at compartmentalizing, right? That's, a, that's one of these phrases you hear constantly. And every time I hear that, I think, God, what, what would I give to be really good at compartmentalizing? See, <laughs> right? Interesting. Yeah. So it just doesn't. You know, there are so many ways it doesn't play out. Wait, wait, and then you're always like, well, maybe I'm the one man who can't com- compartmentalize. And I'm like, or maybe it has nothing to do with being a man at all. Maybe it's just some people are good at comp- compartmentalizing men and women, and some are not good at compartmentalizing men and women. And that's not what really is going on here. It's not really a gender thing. Something else is going on. Maybe people who are highly anxious aren't good at compartmentalizing. Maybe people who have high focus aren't good at com- compartmentalizing. Maybe people who have openness to experience on the big five are not good at compartmentalizing. could be a lot of things going on. Right. No, absolutely. Not that I actually have any real deep interest in compartmentalizing. I'm just <laughs> acutely aware of how bad I am at it, if it were something. And this whole inability, I think, for us culturally to kind of marry the the personal experience, what kind of life do I want to live, with the the larger sort of social and political one. I mean, I, I think about that a lot. I don't know if that... I know you, you focus much more on individuals and, and their own questions, but you also at one point were writing more about large political trends and, and evolutions. And the, the separation of these things strikes me as 
imbalance. I don't know if it ever was balanced, but I wonder if there's a way in which some of what you're, you're beginning to address, I mean, you've pointed to it with the new four tendencies of maybe this helping not just individuals figure out their own path, but other people trying to figure out what other people's path is. But, you know, it'd be nice to figure out a way to have some of these questions work their way into our collective decisions, right? Our political decisions, our social decisions. Do you see... Well, it seems like one of the things that's interesting right now is a lot of people are saying that I need to do something concrete in my own life to demonstrate my values. That it's sort of like, I thought everybody had these values. These are the values that are just like the default values. I don't really have to particularly go out of my way to affirm these values. But I've heard many people like really go out of their way to take, you know, to do a lot of work in order to demonstrate what their values are. So I think there's kind of a moment here where People are trying to um, put values into action in a way that maybe they didn't feel like they needed to before. It's interesting. I mean, it'd be interesting to see if that works on all sides of a political spectrum, because I'm not really making that as a political advocacy point as much as, you know, people either seem to be living their lives, which most of us are doing, irrespective of what's going on in the world at large, right? I mean, most of us are trying to just figure out who we are and what we want and how to get through our days in a way that is balanced and meaningful. And I think that's a lot of what you've uh, addressed. But then there are things that we need to do collectively that mm-hmm. that either aid in that or mm-hmm. create problems for that. And they do seem to, seem to be very different discussions, at least um, in my impression of them. Like, it'd be very hard to imagine someone on the Senate floor talking about, you know, does this bill help or hinder our collective happiness or our collective well-being as opposed to something else. Um, well, I have to read this fantastic Orwell quote, which I think um, is talks about that. Hang on, because he says everything so beautifully. Um, hang on, let me see if I can find it. I was thinking before when you said, no, people are not living lives of quiet desperation. I was thinking, yes, but maybe writers are constantly living lives That's of right. quiet yeah, desperation. Yeah, yeah. So this is what George Orwell wrote in an essay called Charles Dickens. He wrote, progress is not an illusion. It ha- it happens, but it is slow and invariably disappointing. Consequently, two viewpoints are always tenable. The one, how can you improve human nature until you have changed the system? The other, what is the use of changing the system before you have improved human nature? They appeal to different individuals, and they probably show a tendency to alternate in points of time. And so I think, I think you're right. There's like, there's like, do we need to change the individual? Do we need to change systems? You know what? What is within our grasp? They're both important. They're both valid. Um, you know, one is the work of a lifetime. One maybe you could do. You could you could accomplish something in a week. Um, but one of the fallacies, one of the great myths of happiness, is that it's and it's a real moral concern for people, is that they think, well, I have such a life full of comfort and safety that if I'm not happy, I must be a spoiled brat, or if I want to be happier, it's ridiculous. Or they think that in a world so full of suffering, it's not morally appropriate to be happier. But what in fact research shows is that more that um, happier people are more altruistic. They give away more money. They volunteer more time. They're more likely to help out if a friend or a fa- family member or a colleague needs a hand. They make better leaders and better followers. They suffer less like burnout, bad behavior at work. They, they're healthier. 
Um, and when people are happier, they just more naturally turn outward and think about the problems of other people and the problems of the world. They just naturally become more interested in that, whereas people who are unhappy tend to become defensive and isolated and, and preoccupied with their own problems because they're unhappy. And so, so people worry that it's selfish to want to be happier, but in fact, um, if, you do, if it is selfish, you should do it for selfless reasons because actually being happier is going to make you uh, more concerned about the happiness of others. Yeah, I mean, another way of thinking about that, which I've thought of in terms of our cultural moment, is optimism and a view about the future that is potentially positive is a, can help motivate you to create it really profound pessimism about the arc of the future, you know, the belief that everything is going to hell in a handbasket can become mm-hmm. both very enervating and somewhat self-fulfilling. It's like if everything's going to fall apart, why mm. should I start a company? Why should I... Ooh, quit sugar. Yeah. Why should I manage my blood sugar? That is very true. Well, and it could be that people who are more, who are more open to experience... Um, are more willing to, to embrace change or to see the possibilities of change or to try to train into change. Um, you know, like 70-year-olds who are trying to, you know, just watching TV now is so technologically demanding, I can barely do it. I am amazed that my parents can watch TV because, like, it's hard. It's a lot of, a lot of channels, a lot of switches. Lot of, like, there's a lot of buttons to push. It doesn't make any sense. Anyway, um, but then if you're somebody who's very tied to tradition and gets a lot of pleasure from tradition and pleasure from, like, my grandfather did this, my father did this, and I'm doing this too, and really finds comfort and satisfaction in that, which is certainly um, a super valid and important theme in, in happy lives, um, then the idea that this, these traditions are being broken or that things are not going to proceed in the same way would be very distressing. Um, you know, it, like, um, you know, we, we've always worked there, we've always lived here, or we've always been part of this community, or we've always gone to this church, or we've always... You know, we've always been in this state, or we've always gone to this university, or whatever it might be. Some people feel more sad at change. So I hadn't thought about that. Like, and so maybe, maybe you do feel like, well, if, if what's good is the past, then maybe I don't want to deal with what the future requires. And certainly not put in a lot of effort, whether yes. it's investing money, time, or energy yes. in, in making that future. Yes. Instead of moving, I'm going to stay here and wait for my old job to come back. Right. And I'm not going to train for a different kind of job because I want my old job. Or I'm not going to, I'm not going to attempt to change this script because I'm relatively convinced the outcome is bad. Right. And, and therefore, what's the point? Why, why even bother? And, right. uh, you know, that's, that, that, can, that sort of plays into what you're saying of there, there are reasons to try to focus a little bit more on whether it's your own contentment or your own ability to do something about it, because that has both a positive internal outcome, but it can also have an incredibly galvanizing external one as yeah. well. All these other topics that we could talk about, you know, it makes me think about, you could talk about the role of technology, right? People fall on that, on that spectrum exactly as you just described. Oh, it's destroying traditional life, or it's opening up the possibilities of a new life. And people fall all over the spectrum when it comes to that. Yes, yeah, yeah. Um, but that's for another conversation and yeah. another time. Excellent. So good luck with, uh, with the new book. Thank you. And the continued work. It was so fun to talk to you. Thanks so much for having me on your show. Thank you.
Hi, this is Craig Robinson from Ways to Win. And support for this podcast comes from Invesco QQQ. The future isn't scary, not realizing its potential, however, could be. Just like on the recruiting trail, I've seen potential come in many forms as a coach. Learn more at Invesco.com slash QQQ. Let's rethink possibility. Invesco Distributors, Inc. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details.